verse 18. That is the only place we will be. That is the only verse we will look. Well, we'll talk about other verses. But that is going to be the focus here. A single verse, we'll call it the gospel in a teacup. Tim Cassie is in many senses a missionary reporter. He goes into the mission field to see what the missionaries are doing to report back to people like us who probably don't often get beyond Dallas, uh, who do not get past Oklahoma City. Most of us have no idea what the mission field is like. If Katie was here, she could tell us what it's like to be in Iraq, up near the Kurdish mountains. Tim Cassie has a video series the pastor has offered to us. I believe it's actually out on the bookshelf, unless somebody has taken it and is watching it right now. Uh, it's a five-video series. He's also written a number of books to help us understand what it is like in places we will never see. In Pakistan comes this story. About 8 o'clock this evening, Joseph drove us over to Lahore General Hospital to visit Pastor Indriaz, who was severely beaten by several Muslims in his village near Manawala yesterday. We walked through a dark courtyard, careful not to stumble over the people spending the night there. Families of patients huddled together in the shadows. In the hospital ward, 40 men were housed with Pastor Indriaz. Cats darted in and out of the room, and flies lingered over the blood-spattered floor. The left side of the young pastor's head was smashed in. The beating severed his ear and left him blind in one eye. Because of convulsions, his wrists were awkwardly tied with cords, leaving him in a position of twisted agony. His wife, Shanaz, sat next to him, holding their three-month-old boy, Saman. She stared blankly at her husband with indescribable sadness in her eyes as the baby nuzzled her and cried softly. Joseph and Anika confronted the doctors. It seemed clear that the doctors had hoped Indriaz would be dead by now. And they are uncomfortable with the attention his case is now getting. Before I left, Indriaz, before I left, Indriaz began to stir and fixed his one eye on me. Who can describe the sorrow? in that eye. A few days later, they returned to the hospital. On that evening, we returned to the hospital to check on Pastor Andreas, and incredibly, the hospital had released him, saying he was in satisfactory condition. We found him lying on some blankets on a concrete walkway outside the ward with his discharge papers and a bottle of vitamins. His family was with him, but they didn't know what to do. Indriaz has lost the use of his right arm and his, his blind eye now white and his ear badly stitched together. Most people would not treat a dog the way they have treated this man. While we talked to his mom, Indriaz looked up and began to sob. I held his hand and Michelle wiped his tears. Churches burned, homes burned, saints beaten. Today our pastor is out with the flu. Today, we sit in comfort in a climate-controlled room. To 
Today, we do not fear that our pastor will have his head smashed in. We do not feel that, fear that jack boots will march down the street. We do not expect to have Molotov cocktails thrown into our worship service. Today, we believe we are safe. James, Jesus' brother, sobered up the saints when he wrote, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. And I don't start this way to make you fear or to make you worried, and I'm not, tr- I'm not trying to prey on a false sense of sympathy for those who are suffering, truly suffering around the world. But to open our eyes that from the first bite of the forbidden fruit in the garden, death has loomed at our door. Abel thought he was safe when he went into the field with his brother, Cain. Some in our church family here have tasted the bitter fruit of sudden death this past week. But Saint, we realize this is not our home. I read a John Piper quote yesterday while I was preparing, and he clarified this point saying, in getting their joy from heaven, Christians become free from the earth. In getting our joy from heaven, we are free from the binds, that which binds us, that which entices us on the earth. Saint, the message of the cross and the resurrection ought not only fill us with joy overflowing, not just some experiential high, and it is that, but it should change us from within, change the very people that we are. And today we're going to look at a part of a single verse, not even the whole verse, just the part of a single verse, to glean and savor the glories of God and our Savior, to praise His sovereign purpose and plan and to drink deep of the nourishing truth that we will see ahead in the future, that we will see in the coming kingdom, that we will see in the place that He has gone to prepare for us. And we will know the full love that God has for us since he gave us his son. Let's pray together. Father, guard our hearts and minds, even now. Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, as David proclaimed thousands of years ago. Oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer, do your good work in us as we delight to hear your voice in your word. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Let me first start with housekeeping. Um, I don't mind the kids, okay? I don't mind the kids running around. I don't mind the kids playing around. What a blessing to have them here, okay? So not a thing. If Jared wants to come back in with your little one, that's all good. All right, we are, in the, we are like smack in the middle of First Peter. Chapter 3, verse 18, first half. This is it. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Boom. Some background. Peter is writing to scattered Christians. If you flip back to the beginning of the book, you can read a whole bunch of places that you can't pronounce. Um, Or you could probably sound out. Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. He's writing to exiles in the dispersion. A dispersion is usually not something desired. It's a scattering. To the exiles in the dispersion, they were scattered, the scattered church. This is all in Turkey, modern-day Turkey. These are in places where Paul built churches. And Peter is coming in afterwards, and they are already being scattered by persecution. Persecution by Jews and Gentiles alike. 
persecution by Jews who don't want them preaching what is contrary to the law. And the Romans or the Gentiles, they don't want them preaching what is contrary to Rome. 1 Peter is a letter to exiles living in a foreign land, to strangers and aliens. And he uses those words. In chapter 2, verse 11, he refers to them as sojourners and exiles. Sojourners, wanderers. You don't belong here. We're just kind of passing through. So much does he recognize them in this way. He exhorts them to be subject to authority. Okay, a normal citizen knows he has to be subject to authority, but somebody who is a stranger, you still must be subject to authority. Submit yourself. So much so, in chapter 2, verse 17, he says to honor the emperor. Well, he's not my emperor. I don't care. Honor the emperor. It's a letter about suffering in this present life. In the opening chapter, Peter speaks about how even now they are rejoicing in the sureness of their salvation, guarded by God, ready to be revealed, though for a little while you are grieved by various trials. In chapter 1, verse 6. The word suffering is used, or some form of suffering, or to suffer, is used 16 times in this letter. The second nearest book in all of Scripture is Hebrews, where it is used eight times. Twice as many times does Peter use the word suffering because he knows they will suffer, because he knows they are suffering. But it's not a downer letter. It is one of the most hope-filled letters within Scripture. It is saturated with what God has done in Christ. It is saturated with, with what God will bring to pass by Christ. It is saturated with what God is doing now through Christ, right now, in us who abide in Christ. It sings of the gospel hope in the midst of difficult days. And so we are going to look at that power in an espresso shot in a single verse. Here we go. Let's take it apart. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. On Wednesday night, we celebrated the fact that Christ suffered. He suffered. He was crucified. What did he suffer? He suffered pain. He suffered emotional pain as he wrestled in the garden with what he had to do. His flesh cried out, I don't want to do this. Take this cup from me. And then the resolve of his purpose, but not my will, but yours be done. He suffered emotionally. He suffered physically. From the time he was captured, he began to be beaten. He was beaten through the night. He was blindfolded and beaten. Who hit you? He was spit upon. And that was just the beginning. When he was sent to Pilate, Pilate had nothing for him, sent him to Herod. Herod had nothing for him, so they beat him a little bit. 
and sent him back to Pilate. Pilate goes, you know, what, what? Come on, give me something, give me something. And Jesus gives him nothing. So fine, he relents to be crucified, go be crucified. And now the professionals took over. And the Romans took him down and scourged him. Beat the flesh off his back. To run the humiliation further, the crown of thorns. They struck him on the head with a dowel rod, essentially, with a rod. And then to be crucified. Hanging on the cross to the point of asphyxiation. Did he suffer physically? Oh, yeah. But I would argue, and I, I do every, every year we come to this point, that his greatest suffering was not the pain that he suffered. That was bad. Have other people in this world been tor- tortured more? Yes, probably so. But what Christ suffered was pain. But more than that, he suffered the wrath of God. In a morning, in an afternoon, he took the wrath of God for all sins committed past, all sins to be committed until Christ returns again and there is no more sin. All of them. How bad is it? Oh, John Piper. Let's see if I can find a quote. John Piper writes, how can one man in a matter of hours drain the cup of God's wrath that would have taken an eternity to pour out on me? Not much less all of you. Couple them all together. Christ suffered. Isaiah writes that he was pierced for our transgressions. Pierced. He was crushed for our iniquities, crushed. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 10 of Isaiah 53 says, it was the will of God to crush him. For what? For our sin. Peter said, for Christ also suffered once for sins. What is sin? It is the creature having greater affection for any created thing more than the creator. It is the creature having greater affection for any created thing more than the creator. Now we tend to think of sin as disobedience. I I disobeyed. But what is the root of disobedience? I want something more than I want from God. I want his things. I want stuff. I want pleasures. I want power. I want wealth. But not him. God makes this truth very plain when Jesus says, you cannot serve two masters. The greatest commandment, you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. Brothers and sisters, only if we love God with this kind of primacy can we love anything or anyone else properly. Only if we love God foremost can we love anything else properly. The flip side of that is that if you do love anything else with a greater priority in your life, your child, your spouse, your car, your drugs, your team, your friend. If you love you more than God himself, you cannot love God properly. It is idolatry. And God is calling out to humanity that what we are feasting upon is poison. It will kill you. It will separate you from the living God. Hear me, it will separate you from the living God. It will not only kill you in this life, it will lead to an eternity of separation and wrath. This is the lake of fire. This is the second death from which there is no return. While we still have breath in our lungs, we can repent and turn to the living God. When we die, there's no going back. The rich man was in such misery that he pleaded to Abraham that he would send Lazarus and dip his finger in a cup of water and give him a drop of water to ease his agony. Christ also suffered once for sins. Now these aren't just some random nameless sins. They're your sins. They are my sins. We have to own it. The righteous for the unrighteous. That's me. He's the righteous. I'm the unrighteous. Paul writes to the Corinthian church in his second letter, for our sake, for our sake, he, God the Father, made him, God the Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, made him to be sin who knew no sin. He was righteous. He was a spotless lamb. He made him to be sin who knew no sin. God imputed all the sin of all humanity ever on to God the Son on that day. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Roll swap. That is the big word, imputation. He took all my sin. I get all his righteousness. Now, hear this. Notice, notice the word here. Christ also suffered once. 
once. Man understands, man knows in his heart that God must be appeased. Man knows that he is broken. It's the stuff of pagan worship. It's the stuff of mythology. You have to appease the gods or you're going to suffer their wrath. Only in recent years, in man's scientific wisdom, has he dismissed the living God to essentially absolve himself of having that guilt that he does carry. He knows there is this guilt. He knows there's this need for appeasement, but he has argued himself as a fool that there is no God. And so he still suffers with this guilt. In times past, up till about 150 years ago, the secular atheistic mind was a peculiarity. It was a non-thing because everybody knew it. Everybody knew it and everybody felt it. And even today, the secularists who are going, oh, there is no God, there is no God, then why are crystals on the rise? Why are these, these false religions on the rise amongst those who would call themselves secular or atheist? Because there is that spiritual hole that cries out, we know God must be appeased. But God in his word makes plain that even the blood of bulls and goats cannot atone for man's sin. It can be representative of something later that will come, but it's not going to do the job. It's not going to do the trick. Jesus Christ suffered once. It's done. This, this thought is replete in the book of Hebrews. Jesus saves. Chapter 9, verse 26 of Hebrews says, He appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. One chapter later, he says, by the will of God the Father, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. In that same chapter, he writes, when Christ had suffered for all time a single sacrifice, I'm sorry, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. For all time, once. That is the significance of Christ on the cross saying, it is finished. To tell us that it's paid in full. It is done. There is no other sacrifice. That's why Paul tells the church at Rome, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You don't need to worry about last rites. You don't have to give alms. You don't have to pray five times a day. You don't have to go to the priest for confession. It is finished. Jesus Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. To what end? 
that he might bring us to God. Before this, you couldn't do it. You couldn't come to God. You were separated. You were dead in your sins, Ephesians 2.1 tells us. In that parable of the, or the story, it might be actually an actual story of the rich man and Lazarus, Abraham says there is a chasm fixed between us. You can't cross over. You can't get there. That, that is in the realm of the dead, but that is true here. Nobody can come to God. But you don't have to. Someone's going to take you there. He has paid the penalty. He brings us to God. He did this that he might bring us to God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way. John 14, verse 6. No other name by which man may be saved. Now get this. He, this is to bring us to God. A dead man can't do that. The implication is that he has to rise to bring us to God. And that's even, I said I wasn't going to do the rest of the verse. We're going to do the rest of the verse here. You can see that in the rest of the verse where he says, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. There is the resurrection. Because he is alive, he brings us to God. If Christ had remained dead, it would be a wedding without a groom. So imagine this, Christ taking us to the Father. Here, let me introduce you to my dad. Hey, dad, these are the ones I was talk talking to you about. These are my, my people. This is my bride. This is my church. It's there in the sentence structure. There is no reason that a treasonous man should ever think that he may utter a word to a king. I mean, think about it. You know, maybe in a realm, a faithful citizen on the street might at one time have an audience with the king. But, you know, Joe Schmo, he didn't get to do that. How much less a traitor? Is he going to get an audience with the king? No. How much less a murderer, a liar, a thief, a cheat, an adulterer? And St. The, the cherry on top of this is this is not something he will do. This is not something he will do future. In the future, God the Son will take us before God the Father. He has done so now. It is open to us now. This is why we can come boldly before the throne of grace now. He has opened the way for us now. We can draw near the author of Hebrews says, we can draw near with a true heart full of assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So, the, the implications could fill 18 more sermons. Let me mention three things. You now, right now, have peace. 
you now, right now, have peace. You have peace for the future. You have peace for today. Jesus Christ, before he was executed, says, my peace I leave you, my peace I give to you. You don't have to come up with your own peace. You don't have to have a positive attitude to go, oh, okay, I'm not going to stress about these things. You have the peace of Christ available to you now in your relationship with him. Well, what's going to happen to my nation? What's going to happen to my kids? What is this lump that I found? What happened to the stock markets? What's going to happen to my job? I'm not trying to snow you. Those things matter. They matter. And we should plan and we should act accordingly in this life. But all you can do is all you can do. After that, abide in the peace of God. Because only the outcome it can be known by him. Only the outcome is known by him. And in that, we can have peace. Second thing we can have is hope. We now have a certain knowledge that our sin is paid for. We know this. We have a certain knowledge that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. We know this. We have a certain knowledge that he has gone to prepare a place for us. And even while we are separated, he abides with us until the day when he will return to lavish upon us the fullness of our salvation. We have that certain knowledge. We have a certain hope that cannot be taken from us. We have peace, we have hope, we have joy. While we wait with a certain hope, we wait with joy. When Jesus said, my peace I leave with you, in that same section of Scripture, he also said that all of these things I have said to you, that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. Once again, you don't have to come up with your own peace. You don't have to come up with your own joy. The joy of God the Son is lavished upon us, is imputed to us, is given to us in our relationship with Him. We have been reconciled to God. Think of the joy of Christ. Joy in His Father. Joy in the completed work. Joy in seeing His saints redeemed. In God, oh, in God is the fullness of joy. We're not going to find it in this plane. If we find our joy in Him, all the joys of this world will be in their proper place. But if we find our joys in the things of this world, we will neither rejoice in nor have peace with God, and our hope will be all for naught. Let me end with a, another story from Tim Kazee's book, Dispatches from the Front. The first one was in Pakistan. This one is in Singapore. 
And he starts it this way. He says, not all gospel stories have happy endings. And this one doesn't. Ika, a Muslim woman from Java, came to Singapore for work as a domestic. Ika heard the gospel here and believed in Jesus. She loved to be with God's people on the Lord's Day, growing in her faith. She wanted to be in church every Sunday, but her employer only permitted her two Sundays off a month. Another man offered to hire Ika and give her every Sunday off, only at a third less pay. She took the job. Two extra Sundays in church a month? But the man cheated her. He gave her no days off, and then he fired her. She returned to her family in Java with little to show for her time in Singapore except her faith. Now remember, Ika was a Muslim. When she returned home, her husband opened her suitcase at the bus station and found her Bible. He refused to allow her to come back home, even to see their son. The last that was heard from Ika, she was wandering and looking for work. She had called back to the church to ask them to mail her baptismal certificate. She wanted it as a token of her testimony and of her time with the people she loved to be with. Tim writes, Tonight I think of my sister Ika, poor, rejected, wandering like those in Hebrews 11, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Right now, Ika, at least at the writing, she may not even be alive anymore. She was suffering, real suffering. But at that time also, she knew the one who suffered once for her sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring her to God. Right now, she can know that peace. Right now, she can know that hope and that joy. All because she knows her Savior. All because He is risen. All because He is risen indeed. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for the full assurance of our relationship with You in Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for making it plain to us in your word. Oh God, that your saints would be encouraged that we would stand firm in dark and difficult days. Father, if there be any here that do not know, today is the day of salvation. Oh, that we would stop trusting in ourselves, that we would stop trusting in our wisdom that we would believe and receive the free gift of eternal life. Father, we beg that you would be honored as we continue our worship. In Jesus' name, amen.